Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the first episode of the new Trillium podcast called The Trill. It is Friday, March 24th. It is the day after the 2023 Ontario budget, and we are going to be breaking all of that down with you today. I'm joined by Carl Baldoff, Vice President, McMillan Vantage. And uh, Mike Moffat, uh, Senior Director, Smart Prosperity Institute. And one thing Carl didn't say is that he was finance minister, Peter Bethlen Falvey's right-hand man for quite a while while he was at Treasury Board. So we are very excited to uh, to have him on to give us some uh, insights into uh, into the finance minister's brain. So general question off the top, uh, wondering if you guys could just give us a quick assessment or kind of any top line thoughts you had about this budget. Carl, maybe start with you. Sure, I'm happy to go first, and I always I always need to check my myself and whether or not I'm being partisan. But I, I spoke to a good colleague of mine this morning who is who is definitely not a partisan conservative, and I said, it seems to me like this budget came off as something being very pragmatic and the stuff of a natural governing party, and uh, the the coverage seemed to indicate that that it seemed as a balanced approach to government, and my colleague. Uh, begrudgingly agreed with me. <laughs> so I, my, my sense is that, you know, the conventional wisdom is that the first budget after a majority government elect is reelected is where you do the difficult things um, because it's the, the budget that's farthest from the next election. But I think there's some trepida- trepidation that still reverberate, reverberates through this government after their budget in 2019, when famously, you know, it went over rather poorly. Um, you know, in fairness, uh, it was never going to be easy to be the first budget uh, of a conservative government after 15 years of a left of center liberal government. But I think the premier learned that uh, you know, he doesn't like having people angry at him because he's taken things away. And ever since then, we've seen a less ideologically conservative approach to budget making. Um, and so, you know, in this budget, that continues. Uh, increases in spending. Um, a focus on key areas for this government, like infrastructure investment, a recognition that um, that things are getting more expensive. So, you know, the benefit of, of increased inflation is you get more revenue. The flip side of that is that you've got to spend more on everyday things and people are expecting more for their salaries. So, you know, there, there was, you know, some stuff written about a lack of affordability measures for day-to-day Ontarians. I think I, I can get into a bit of a conversation later about how those actually are there. If that was one, if there was one piece of negative coverage, is that the opposition was trying to portray this as not not having enough things for everyday people. There are things reflected in the budget, but this is a steady issue goes budget that reflects, I think, what the government is trying to portray as the natural governing party for our province. And Mike. Yeah, I would uh, I, I would largely uh, agree with Carl on that, though. You know, I, I put the spin on it uh, somewhat somewhat differently. It is a very steady uh, as she goes budget, and it's you know seems to uh, seems to basically look at Ontario as being sort of essentially on the right path, and we just essentially need to do 
uh, more of the same. So, you know, and I come from it from a, a different angle. You know, when I look at the the, the 50,000 plus people leaving Ontario for, for other provinces because of housing affordability, you know, young people getting priced out of their cities, you know, I tend to go, uh, you know, I, I actually think we, we probably need uh, more substantive change to get uh, a province uh where you know that works both economically and socially but i, I do agree at the, the top level with, with carl that this is a very steady as she goes uh don't rock the boat not much incremental uh you know at best incremental uh change here so there wasn't there wasn't uh too many surprises um it was you know more more what it wasn't in the budget than than what was carl could i actually get you to follow up on that affordability piece that you mentioned yeah so um the opposition was saying that you know there is not enough measures uh, for everyday people. Uh, the government did extend the the gas tax cut. There is the low income tax credit. They've increased disability support payments, and you know one of the things that we've realized through the pandemic is we really need government to be there for us when we need it most, and. You know, souping up investments in infrastructure as they have, or in healthcare as they have, will create more reliable infrastructure in healthcare. And so, for anyone that's skipping their job because they've been waiting in an emergency room for 12 hours, you know, there's a flowing of funds in a way that there hasn't been in the past to adjust and ensure that these services are delivered in a better way and will get allow people to get on with their life more efficiently. So, you know, do you have the kind of license plate fee renewal that you had in the last budget, you know, incidentally, right before the last election? No, but, you know, this is this is creating the stuff of of of, of a competently managed government and delivering on services for people the way that they want to receive them from government. And I think I would not be doing my job as a host if I did not allow Mr. Moffat to, to yeah. respond to that if he wanted to. Yeah, and I, I, I certainly think it's you know an area sort of scope. So yes, you you do have those uh, you know extra dollars flowing to you, uh, but you know if we look at the city of Toronto. Uh, the rent on a new lease on a one bedroom apartment it is up five hundred dollars a month, six thousand dollars a year. So you know to get a, a few extra bucks on a on a license plate uh, renewal. I mean that's that's not nothing, but you know we need to consider the scope here. And I think as well, again, there, there's just differences in approach here, where you know the, the government's approach to making uh, households better off in income is basically give them, giving them more money, which is certainly one way of going about it. Um, but I, I think the missing piece here is, is creating creating more housing, creating more infrastructure to actually lower the cost of living. Um, so that piece of it tends to be missing. And I think, you know, there is uh, a differences in scale where, you know, you're, you're losing 10 or $20 out of one pocket and, and getting a buck returned, you're still, you're still down significantly. So we will definitely return to the housing piece later, given that, uh, you know, Mike Moffat is kind of the guru on all things housing. But Carl, I wanted to ask you kind of two specific questions, given your background with with Peter Bethlen Falvey, and then we can maybe get into more of the, the substantive kind of policy stuff uh, around housing and other things. So, Carl, I'm wondering kind of what's the thinking, the kind of political strategy behind announcing a lot, if not all of the major measures in the budget ahead of time versus saving some of the goodies uh, for the budget day itself that could make headlines? Yeah, you know, this is a 
over $200 billion package of stuff. And if you just kind of dump it day of, you're not really guiding people's eyes. So taking the time a week or two in advance to show off some of the shinier pieces allows those items to get the coverage that they deserve, right? If you have, you know, if you have 10 things where you're souping up funding in a significant way and you don't release them in advance, but they are included in the budget document, well, then after the budget, it will have been public knowledge. So it's not really surprising or new, but you'll have allowed the media and opposition to portray those things in whatever light that they want. So there's value in taking the time in the weeks leading up to the budget to 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 you know get your stakeholders out to have some 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 good looking announceables. You know, this week we saw the premier and the finance minister and other ministers at manufacturing sites um, and really showing off, for example, their their manufacturing tax credit of ten percent up to two million dollars to expand manufacturing in the province. You know, looked it looked really good. If they hadn't rolled that out before the budget, then it would have been in the budget. Um, media would have said, if you know, if they would have rolled it out next week, well, you know, we already know that you, it was in your budget last Thursday. So you want to bring as much attention and focus to the to the frankly expensive items that you're spending a lot of money on, and that also advance kind of the key narratives of the government to key constituencies. So you know, the other thing that you do sometimes is um, take kind of if you're concerned about a bad news budget, you take kind of the more controversial or interesting things that can suck up oxygen or 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 um, or attention to deflect from perhaps a bad news budget. And I recall, for example, you know the the Harper government used the getting rid of the penny as a way of deflecting from negative news in the days in advance of the budget. And it absorbed a lot of media attention on something relatively innocuous, um, but it, it was successful in that regard. So, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole strategy around kind of budget communications planning. Um, you know, to go back to my, one of my first points though, it seems as though this budget landed well, and it seems as though the communications tactics that they employed uh, are, were therefore successful. And the second thing I want to ask you, again, given your experience working with Peter, is is you know he's kind of the only guy in the government being the finance minister, along with Treasury Board Secretary uh, Prabhmeet, that you know he's he, him and Prab are the only ones whose jobs are to say no to other ministries. No, we can't spend that money. No, we have to you know be focused on the long term fiscal situation. So I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a sense of maybe what are some of the types of budget pitches from other cabinet ministers that he might be particularly inclined to say yes to, might be particularly inclined to say no to, kind of some of that uh, insight on the the intra-cabinet dynamic uh, that goes into crafting the budget. Yes, and this challenge is especially compounded when you're the party of yes. Um, so uh, yeah, you know, it's it's true. And this is, I mean, to be frank, and this is a premier that that does not does not like saying no to people. And it's not just the commercial. Like he he is somebody who is very passionate about ensuring that stakeholders hold him in a high regard and like surprise as he should be he's the leader of the party but i think he's especially sensitive to 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 that so so the job goes to others around him whether it be staff or senior cabinet ministers to, to decline key proposals um and and fair enough you know you 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 don't need the premier carrying water 
you need that person to be seen in, in a relatively positive light. So, okay, so the question is, you know, how can can a minister or a stakeholder get their policy proposal across the finish line? Well, you know, I think Peter Bethlenbalvi is someone who um, has brought to this job a lot of experience on Bay Street and Wall Street, uh, a lot of experience understanding what the markets are especially attuned to. And in this regard, is trying to build confidence around the fiscal plan for the province. He's also somebody who cares about the details. So, you know, working with him, it was always important that we be, you know, crisp on the numbers and the evidence. So, you know, you can't rely upon um, political jargon when appealing to him. You have to come with uh, a substantiation of facts that it is consistent with the the mandate that the government has been elected on. So, you know, in last year's election, the government was elected on a, a narrative to get things built to get Ontario's economy moving, and you know, you you would need to substantiate in a real way that your proposal is aiming to do these things, and in a way that's consistent with the 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 priorities of the government. So um, you need to start early in the cycle because, of course, um, as you get closer to the budget, um, uh, a lot of energy and time is eaten up um, and you need to be consistent. So, you know, all of these ministers and especially Prab and, 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 and Minister Bethlenfaldi have, you know, dozens of briefings a day, question period that they're preparing for, a variety of, 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 of press briefings. And, and and announcements and tour. And so, you know, you need to make sure that you are getting the message to them and doing so in a consistent way over a prolonged period of time. And uh, and you also need to bring make sure that you've got the confidence of their staff too. I mean, so many stakeholders want to meet with the minister. The fact of the matter is uh, a good minister is turning to his senior staff and saying, have you talked to them? What do you think? And so I don't think that you can ever discount the, the the importance of getting not just chiefs of staff and directors of policy, but good chiefs and directors turn to their senior policy advisors and say, well, you're the lead on this file. What 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 is the research that you've done? So I think those are how you get things across the finish line. Now, I said I would ask you two questions, but I'm just wondering quick, anything about Bethlehem Falvey that you think people might misunderstand, overplay, or just kind of get wrong that would be useful for them to know? Yeah, I think people actually underplay the 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 experience that he brings to the table from 30 years on Bay Street and Wall, and Wall Street. And I think they underplay the extent to which that has enabled him to understand how do you send confidence through the market and you know in this case through the electorate he understands the external issues at play he understands how geopolitical tensions have caused a need to bring supply chains closer to home as well as how making strategic investments can drive up a competitive advantage for the future you know other conservatives may be more ideological about strategic investments as that's not the role for government but i think where he would come from it is a perspective of government has a role to play that is stimulative in nature that can bolster revenue for the province. Um, and that's a more effective uh, arrangement than, than say increasing taxes. So I think he understands the value in the role of government. I think he understands the role that the markets play. And I think that's why we have a steady as you go budget that's looking like it's going to get us back to balance very in the very near future. 
Well, you ending that with back to balance is perfect because now I'm going to transition to ask Mike a couple questions because he's uh, you know been a little been a little quiet. So, Mike, um, just so listeners know, uh, journalists get the budget ahead of time. The, the day of, we're in a thing called a lockup where you know we're we're pouring over the budget, and one of the things that we're allowed to do is bring in an external expert. So, Mike was so generous as to lend his time to the folks at the Trillium to kind of give us an insight. Uh, do a lot of math stuff that, you know, frankly, we're not not great with. And one of the things that we talked about uh, pretty early in the day, Mike, is that uh, you were saying that this is basically a balanced budget using a couple billion dollars in the contingency fund to essentially hide that balance. You would th- you'd said that, you know, showing a deficit might be kind of a negotiating ploy with the federal government, with municipalities and, you know, a, a way to hedge against opposition criticism that, oh, they're not spending enough uh, in, in an affordability crisis when when they really should be. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of lay out that thesis for listeners a bit and then Carl, if you would like to respond to it. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, th- this is common across all governments, both federal and provincial and uh, various stripes that, uh, that budgets will often include this line called uh, contingency. So just in case something happens, and we know we know events happen, both both to the positive and, and negative. So you know, interest rates go up. That means uh, you know, all else being equal, that it costs more to finance government debt. So so budgets will often contain this contingency fund, and that is a decision that's as much economic as it is political. And what the government's done in this budget is have that um, contingency fund increase over time, go from $1 billion this fiscal year to about $4 billion uh, three years from now. And that amount that is going up is also essentially the amount of deficit that they're showing. So if you basically just added the contingency fund to the deficit number, it's basically a wash. Like this is basically a, a projected to be a balanced budget uh, this year. So, you know, people who have been strategists more can, can talk more about the m- motivations. But, you know, it's it's clear here that this is the, the government's approach. So they're essentially wanting to run um, balanced, balanced budgets, you know, again, with the, with this little tweak and that's, you know, that's, that's a choice, you know, all else being equal, would you prefer to have a balanced budget? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, but there's, you know, again, all kinds of, uh, spending pressures, uh, on, on, on infrastructure, on healthcare, on housing, and as well also pressures on, on the tax side. So, you know, governments have that difficult decision to make, and this is uh, a government that, seems to have you know chosen uh, the balanced budget route with again this a uh, little bit of a thumb on the scale with that uh, contingency fund Carl the floor is yours if you would like it yeah so there's there's two things here so the uh, the government is holding 3.9 billion in contingency this year what Mike's talking about is also the reserve fund which is being they're holding 1 billion in the reserve fund this year which is going up to 4 billion by the third year. So what's the difference? So the reserve fund is intended to meet obligations in the event that those financial obligations are interrupted. So if we go into a recession, you've got to believe that our funds are going to dry up pretty fast. So everyone's expecting that there is at least um, a possibility of us going into a recession this year. So holding four billion in um, holding sorry a billion in, in reserve in the in the event that uh, the 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 um, income is 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 dried up, 
the uh, revenue is drying up. That seems fine. And then the 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 three point nine billion in contingency is to cover unexpected expenses. And I think you know I've been watching and was watching this budget. Um, to see how they're going to account for negotiations that are on the horizon. So you've got OPSU uh, that was just concluded, but you've got nurses uh, coming up and going to arbitration in May. You've got teachers who are kind of beating their chests in terms of in, in, impending negotiations. You know, all of these things are going to result in billions and billions over and above. So how the government doesn't set aside billions in reserve and contingency, I don't know. Because the confluence, uh, like, I'm actually surprised that they went out there and said that we're going to balance the budget by next year. Like, I thought that they would, frankly, have given themselves more space. Because between the labor negotiations on the horizon and an impending recession where revenue is going to dry up, you know, faster than you can say Queen's Park, um, I'm surprised that they haven't given themselves more space. And I, I just hope that they're right. Because prudence with those things on the horizon should should it should be the order of the day. Plus, whatever the heck happens with the uh, Bill One Twenty Four appeal. Yes, well, as you say, you know things things could happen that change plans, and so a little bit of prudence is 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 is, is a welcome thing from this government. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, going to stick with you. You wrote a piece for us on what the budget says about housing. Similar question to the last one. Can you just run through your thinking and argument for our dear listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the government has set a, a big, hairy, audacious goal of building 1.5 million homes in Ontario uh, from the start of 2022 to the end of 2031. So so 10 years. And we should note that, you know, that that, that period's already 12 percent over. So we're well into that uh, that sort of 10 year target. So what what the province needs to do or needs to have happen is build 150,000 homes every year on average for the next decade. Well, the budget contains a housing start forecast, and it always does. It has for years. And last budget, uh, the forecast was that for the for the next three years for fiscal or for 2022, 20. 24 and 2025, we would average, the province would average about 86,000 housing starts. So nowhere near 150,000. Well, that forecast has been downgraded largely due to things outside of the province's control, like those higher interest rates that I mentioned earlier, that has been downgraded to about 81,000. So we've set this big, hairy, audacious goal, which is absolutely necessary given given population growth in, in, in this province. And, you know, the province's own numbers are suggesting that we're moving farther away from that. So I think I, I think that's a problem. And I think the, the, the province is not the only stakeholder by any means um, that influences housing starts uh, and housing completions, municipalities, the federal governments, uh, organized labor and so on all play a role. But th this shows that, you know, we're moving in the wrong direction. You know, we have a housing crisis in the province and the, and the government has been very good at recognizing that and identifying that the challenge is is actually doing something about it and unfortunately we seem to be moving in the wrong direction now listeners um we had mike and carl on for the same post-budget podcast last year with a different outlet and when i asked the housing specific question to mike i, I asked carl to follow up 
and uh, and we, we were joking around that uh, you know not necessarily sure if we if uh, he wanted to go toe to toe with with Mike on housing. Carl, I will let you have that opportunity if you want it, but uh, if not, I am more than happy to move on to the next question. Yeah, the one thing that I'll bring into the conversation is the the level of investment that you're seeing around skills development from this government. So some pretty significant investment in skills development. And at least part of it, is, I, I'm not the expert at the level that Mike is, but I know that at least an important part of the equation here is ensuring that we have people that can do the work that's required to get the houses built. And on this front, I think the government is doing quite a bit. Uh, building off of a lot of the positive relationship development that Minister McNaughton has done from a labor perspective. This government is committed to getting people into this country that can do this work, ensuring that they have the skills necessary, and I think are doing a good job of tying their immigration and labor strategy to much of the housing challenges that, to addressing many of the housing challenges. On some of the broader issues, I'll defer to Mike, but I'm encouraged by those 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 measures because I think that there are steps in the right direction. Yeah, and just on that point, uh, so listeners know, the uh, Ontario government secured uh, more of an allocation for, um, uh, it's called the Ontario Immigrant Nominee Program. It allows the Ontario government to kind of choose which kind of immigrants it wants. The budget had, I believe, about $25 million to kind of bolster that program. Um, uh, but I digress. We'll move on to the next question. Also about building, but not necessarily about houses. So much of the government's budget is allocated to building stuff like highways and hospitals, you know, building Ontario, building a stronger Ontario. These are what the budgets are always called. Getting it done is kind of the, the main political narrative of this government. The, the 2023 budget said that the capital plan, which is what funds all of this building out of Ontario, will cost over $200 billion over the next decade, whereas the 2020 budget said had that same figure at about $140 billion. Given how long it takes to build some of these projects and how cost overruns are just inherent to anything like this, rising interest rates, scary macroeconomic environment, uh, and you know, kind of the potential for the federal government to get involved on some things like Highway 413, I'm wondering how much both of you think that this capital plan presents a, a kind of political risk for the government going forward. A political risk in what regard? Because it's such a significant amount of money, or just because these things shift and change and evolve year to year? Honestly, a little bit of both. Yeah. So um, the 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 capital plan increased by uh, almost twenty five billion more than than last year, and um, you know, let's go back to inflation. Uh, it costs more to buy avocados and peppers and it costs more to buy steel and cement. And this is just the challenge that we're in at this time. You've got a premier that wants to get some things done, some big things done. And um, the cost of everything is going up, including the materials that we require to, to, to do that. I think over time, this government in any government you know, comes in by saying, we're going to build these dozens of highways and these you know, these dozens of hospitals. And over time, there's a focusing of resources um, to make sure that you can point to some pretty impressive legacy looking items. So, you know, I think they've put a lot of they've put a lot of political capital into things like the Ontario line, into things like the 413, which delivered for them every riding in Brampton in the last election. So I think that as time goes on, you're going to see them get more and more focused on fewer and fewer uh, capital projects as a matter of priority. I think the last thing the premier wants is for the Ontario line to turn into something like the Eglinton Crosstown, where it's left, just left floundering. 
Um, and you know, I live in downtown Toronto. I've been impressed by the speed with which these sites that are going to be subway stations appear to be to be moving forward. So, um, so things are getting more expensive. The other piece, I'll connect it to the last comment I made, which is that there are only so many people that can build these projects, and the government is effectively pricing themselves out if they're going to have. Um, you know, a dozen major infrastructure projects going on at the same time in the GTA. Well, there there just might not be enough people to, to do work on that. And so various firms are competing to pay people to work on their site, which drives up the cost of labor involved in major infrastructure projects. So another reason why the government focuses over time is because they don't want to price themselves out of projects because the more projects you have with the same amount of people, the more expensive that labor comes. And at the end of the day, if the only customer for these major infrastructure uh, projects is the government of Ontario, they would be wise to focus and plan in a more prudent way. So I think, you know, lofty ambitions at the start, the more that they mature into government realize you need to focus these, these, these major expenditure items. Yeah, I guess kind of what I was getting at with that question is, you know, over time, if if this thing, if, if all these projects, if the costs get way, way higher than expected, and, you know, they might be taking a bit longer because there's a skilled labor shortage, you know, if the opposition says, oh, look, look how expensive this has gotten, look how, look how long it's taking to build, that is not something that worries you from a political communication standpoint, like this is something you think could be explained away effectively to voters? I'm not worried about the NDP complaining about things costing too much, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and nor 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 the liberals in whatever incarnation they're presenting themselves as now. But I think getting things done, um, uh, getting things done in 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 bellwether ridings is going to be important. So um, you know the NDP is against the four thirteen. The liberals are as well. Um, but they'll certainly be holding the government to account over the Ontario line and potentially some highways and some in in some vote rich areas. Um, but I don't think cost overruns is something they have to be concerned about from a from a necessarily from a political perspective. But I do think it's something they need to be concerned about from a general financing uh, perspective. Now, Mike, I do want to give you an opportunity to respond to that if you want to. But uh, we are running a little bit short on time, uh, and I do have one more kind of big question that I want to ask. So, if you do want to respond, if you could uh, make it kind of quick. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I I live in Ottawa, you know, home of the LRT. So, I think you know, there's always a lot of concern about not just cost overruns, but but effectiveness. But you know, I feel like I've been fairly critical of the government on uh, on this one. I will say that I think it's entirely appropriate uh, to have large increases in, in, in capital budgets, um, both, as Carl mentioned, because of inflation, but as, as well, you know, again, we, we've we added 450,000 people uh, to the province of the last year. So we need a lot more infrastructure. So I can't, uh, I can't really sort of criticize the, those budgets going up because it is absolutely needed. You know, we could be critical about individual projects, but on the whole, we have to spend a lot more money on the infrastructure in this province. So last question here, because as I said, we are running a little bit short on time. One thing that a lot of people were looking out for was whether there'd be any money for, you know, municipalities budget holes stemming from from COVID and, and Bill 23, Toronto's however many millions uh, budget hole has kind of gotten a lot of the headlines because it's Toronto. And given Ford's comments in the lead up to the budget, you know, personally, I wasn't expecting much and, and nothing came. We were, however, told to, in so many words... Uh, to, to kind of wait for the federal budget to see if there's anything there. And then, you know, maybe the province would respond to that, depending on what, what Freeland says on March 28th. Um, I'm wondering if you guys think, uh, and if you could comment on kind of both the, the, the policy and the political implications of this choice. Like, 
on, on the politics, is it kind of as simply, is it as simple as, you know, a, a conservative government not want to be seen as, as throwing money to, you know, uh, wasteful municipalities that they might be auditing? Yeah, well, I can talk to the policy one. I think that issue of uh, municipalities not being made whole, as, as uh, the province calls it, on uh, development charge things, I think we need an agreement there. We need it very, very quickly. I mean, the province is already committed to doing so. We just need to know what that looks like because that's causing municipalities to slow down the building of of much needed infrastructure, which is one of the reasons why housing starts is down uh, are down. So I was hoping to see that in there. Let's hope that comes soon. And again, this is a, a commitment the province has already made, uh, you know, made at a high level. They just need to work out the details so we can we can get some shovels in the ground. Yeah, I expect to see more on this from the government as they sort through uh, some of their housing plans. So, you know, I think there's some indication that there'll be more on that coming legislatively, potentially later this summer or sorry, later this spring. And I think the um, addressing some of the municipality's concerns will be better reflected in that than in this budget legislation. So uh, I think there's probably more to come on that front. I will say, having worked in, 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 in an earlier iteration of this government, that the premier was especially attuned to what he was hearing from from municipalities. Like it was always, it was always a sensitive point for him. Um, so he he does care about what mayors and what municipal leaders are saying. He knows from his time in Toronto that they are the level of government that's often most directly in front of people uh, in terms of how they engage with government. So I think he is sensitive to that. Um, but I think mu- so much of this conversation about about municipalities and funding them appropriately has gotten caught up in the conversation around housing. And so as the government addresses that, I think there'll be more for municipalities as part of that conversation. So those were very snappy answers and we actually have about three minutes left. So I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot one last question at you guys. Um, one thing that wasn't really fleshed out in this budget is the is the promised review of Ontario's tax system. It's potentially very, very interesting and you know a huge uh, policy undertaking. I'm wondering how seriously you think Carl first, that, that we should take this promise. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's potentially a, a promise with big implications. But whether or not it was going to be the stuff that would form the foundation of the government's first post-election budget, I don't know if that was the appropriate place to do it. Like they could have done more in terms of their plan to get there, as they did, for example, on auto insurance. Like they said, this is something that we're going to be focused on in the years ahead. And here's how we're going to, here's what the roadmap looks like. So they could have done that. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, uh, finance cares more about tax policy than anything else, because the the bread and butter of, of what finance does is, is bring in revenue. And so, um, you know, it wouldn't be surprising for me if at the last minute they pulled back some things because they were just too concerned about what the long impl- long term implications were. Um, so, you know, that's I would imagine that could have contributed to it. Yeah, so I, I really like this, and uh, I, I hope uh, the governments uh, follow through and, and and implements. Uh, there are, you know, our, our tax system in Ontario, uh, tax and transfer system, is not particularly well defined. I saw Steve Pakin at uh, TVO talking about the fact that with successive governments, we are subsidizing electricity uh, prices by the tunes of six billion dollars a year. That's, you know, that's a massive amount of the government's budget and going, OK, are we getting the best bang for the buck or we could could we use that six billion dollars on other forms of, of tax reform uh, to get this uh, province more, you know, more innovative and uh, more equitable. So I do think that's that's worth looking at. And I really hope that the government does follow through on that promise because I think it's a good one. 
All right. Well, safe to say, uh, stay tuned. And listeners, given that this was the first podcast that we've done at the Trillium, I hope you will stay tuned listening as we continue to have uh, wonderful guests like Carl and Mike on to break down all things uh, Ontario politics and policy. But that is it for the first one. Carl, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I think this has been a been a great podcast. And, uh, you know, come 2024 budget, I guess I'll have to have you guys on again. So, uh, so thank you again. And uh, hope everyone has a great weekend. Thanks, yeah, thanks for having us.